Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Thank you for joining us. I just wanted to introduce our series on Philippians with a few um, observations. This series on Philippians actually has a lot of messages in it, and they're scattered throughout our podcast schedule. So what I'm preaching on today is actually, you'll hear the first, what should have been the first in the sequence, but it is not. And that's no problem, though, because each of the podcast messages is really a contained message and designed that way so that you can get the truth of that passage or paragraph or section and the applications from it, and that would be helpful for your life. But if you want to listen to them in order after today's podcast, you can go back and listen to the next one in sequence would have been number 12, and then the one after that would have been number 39, and the one after that would have been number 73. So take it for what it is and enjoy the book and the messages. I hope that they're helpful to you. I preach from the New King James Version, and uh, we'll be looking at the introduction to Philippians today from chapter 1. Today, I'm talking about uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And I would title this, Thank God for Fellowship. Thank God for Fellowship. You know, we live in an age of super connectivity with social media and cell phones. Everybody seems to be talking to someone all the time or clicking and emailing or messaging constantly. We are totally connected But in my opinion, we have less and less relationship. And in fact, even though these social media are intended to bring us together, I think it really causes a lot of isolation and loneliness because we're not relating to people on the real level, but on only what we want to reveal to them on the social level. It causes loneliness and psychic pain. And that's a great problem in our culture and society, I think, with isolation and loneliness. James Lentz, a researcher, John Hopkins, wrote a book called The Broken Heart, and he says that loneliness is the number one killer. Because I think in the attempt to, to not feel lonely, people do things, drugs, drinking, or, or behavior that, that kills them. And I think this shows that God made us for intimacy and to belong to one another, for social connection, not on a superficial level, but on a deep level. And yet there are many people who try to satisfy that deep need uh, with other means than what God really intends. A couple might jump into a sexual relationship because they're trying to fill this lonely void in their life, or they might jump into a premature marriage before they're ready because they're feeling lonely, but they just find out that causes a lot of problems. Some young ladies think that if they have a baby, they'll have somebody to love and somebody to love them back, and they won't be lonely anymore. Some people try to deal with their loneliness by by working harder, by being more busy, by finding success, or developing business contacts, but none of this satisfies the deep-down longing for intimacy that we have can have with God and with other people. Now, God has a provision for intimacy, and in a word, that is fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. Fellowship means having something and sharing something in common. We usually use it 
in the church speak, we kind of talk about getting together for a fellowship, and that usually means we're going to be eating something or playing some games or lit watching some entertainment, having a potluck dinner, whatever. We call that a fellowship. Nothing wrong with that, but true fellowship, we need to understand, goes much deeper than that. The sharing goes much deeper than with food, music, entertainment, or just being in the presence of others. The commonality that we have in the Christian life, the baseline of all of our sharing is Jesus Christ himself. Christ in me, Christ in you. We might be different age, different race, different societal backgrounds, different from different geographical areas. We might look different, we might think different, but if we have Christ in us, that's the basis for an intimate relationship through fellowship. I think we see this relationship when we look at the book of Philippians and how Paul enjoyed this intimacy with the Philippians, even though the Philippians had a lot of differences for him because they were Europeans, he was Asian, they were largely or mostly Gentiles, obviously, from the epistle, maybe some Jews there, and but Paul was a Jew, and and yet he was able to enjoy intimacy with them. It's even more amazing when we consider how the church at Philippi began. Well, you know, Paul uh, and Silas were on a missionary journey, and they were in Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit forbid them from going into the province of Asia, so they went to Troas. And there in Troas, in Asia Minor, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia. That would be over on the east, the very far east side of Europe, across the GNC. And this vision of a man was saying, come over and help us. Well, Paul responded to that vision, set sail, and landed in Macedonia. And he ended up in the city of Philippi. And there in that city, he went to a Bible study by a river, and there, there were evidently a bunch of ladies there. Lydia was one who she was a businesswoman, sold uh, cloth, and Paul talked to her, and God opened her heart, and she believed, and she and her house, her family were baptized, and Paul stayed with her for a while. And then the story goes on to talk about Paul and Silas being in the marketplace, and there, they were taunted by a demon-possessed slave girl, evidently used by her owners for making money. And they were taunted by this demon-possessed slave girl, and Paul casts the demon out of the girl, and it causes a riot and an uproar, and they are arrested, and they're thrown into a Philippian jail. Well, you know the very familiar story that an earthquake frees them, and the jailer panics because he sees that they are freed, which would cost him his life, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And that's exactly what happened. He believed. And then they went and preached to the household and the household believed and they were all baptized. What a humble beginning to this church that Paul, a Jew from Asia, would come and preach to Gentiles in Europe and yet we will witness such a deep intimacy with them. He begins the passage, he begins our passage today in verse 1, 1, uh, in a very humble way. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. You know, in some epistles, Paul wants to assert his authority up front in his introduction as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here, he introduces he and himself uh, as bondservants of Jesus Christ, slaves of Jesus Christ. He begins the epistle showing a humble mindset. 
which is in harmony with the, with the tone and the teaching of the epistle itself. And Jesus Christ is the center and the model and, and the uh, effectiveness of that humility. He uses Jesus Christ by name in verse 1 twice, Christ Jesus, in the second part of verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops or overseers and deacons. So the church was organized um, here by this time. Now Paul is in a Roman jail cell, we might mention, and he is with Timothy there. This was, uh, of course, after he had planted the church in Philippi. And in jail, he's being supported still by the Philippians, and he's being visited by Epaphroditus, who bears this letter back to the church in Philippi. And so, remember those circumstances. They'll be important as we read through the book. He's in a jail cell, and yet he is able to greet them in the commonality that they have in Jesus Christ. Interesting, but out of 104 verses in the epistle, 51 mention Jesus Christ by name. Almost half of the passages name him, showing that he is at the very baseline or center of any fellowship that we have. I think that the key thoughts of the book of Philippians are well expressed by maybe a couple verses. Uh, first one being chapter 121, which we'll talk about in the in eventually. But he says there, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Jesus Christ is life, defines life for him, life itself. Not only that, but Jesus Christ defines how he thinks and the attitudes that he has. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, and another passage I think is a key verse, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the model, but he's also the means by which we can have this deep fellowship. So, you'll also see in the book of Philippians this emphasis on how we think, our attitudes, and our mind. And and that will appear over and over again. So, I think what Paul is saying in in this letter to the Philippians, that in our partnership in the gospel, we should have Christ's attitude. He's explaining and thanking God for the partnership that he has with them in the gospel. And he's emphasizing the fact that they need to have Christ's attitude of humility. And you'll see also, I think, in the book of Philippians, a little emphasis on accountability at the judgment seat of Christ as he looks forward to that day when he will have to give an account for how he lives and how the Philippians live today or in their time. What we see in verses uh, as we move on is typical greeting in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always like to observe that grace uh, is, is mentioned first because without grace, you cannot have peace. So it may be just a regular uh, salutation, but I think it is more to that than that to Paul. He recognizes the importance of grace in everything and to have a life of peace and harmony with God and with other people. It begins with and ends with grace, and that grace comes from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he expresses how great a blessing fellowship is in verses 3 through 5. Fellowship's a great blessing. Let me read verses 3 through 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So here he's saying that others are a source of thanksgiving and joy to him. When he thinks of them, he thanks God 
whenever he remembers them. And he has great joy in his heart for the fellowship that he has with them. Fellowship is not a burden that he bears. The relationship is not a burden that he bears. Prison is not a, a downer or a burden to him when he knows that he has this fellowship with them. And he can have this joy in the midst of his circumstances from that fellowship. And joy becomes a key word in the epistle too, by the way. You're going to see joy and the word group associated with joy, like rejoice, used 16 times in this short letter. Well, fellowship's a great blessing because it's a source of thanksgiving and joy, but it also meets needs in a very real and substantive way. He's thanking them in verse 5 for the fellowship and the gospel from the first day. I don't think this is the first day of their salvation, but I think their first exposure to him, perhaps, when he first came to know them. And when he talks about their fellowship in the gospel, I think he's not just talking about the spiritual commonality they have, because you will find that this word, koinonia, can often be used for actually monetary contributions or financial gifts or substantive gifts. It's used that way in chapter 4, verse 10 and 15 through 16, When we get there, we'll explain that. And so, what we see here, that the word fellowship is probably referring to the support that they have shown him from the very beginning of his ministry. And they they have supported him uh, financially. 2 Corinthians um, tells us in chapter 8 that the Macedonians gave out of their deep poverty and 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 so, even though they didn't have much, they were a part of his ministry and supported his ministry. They contributed to it. And that was, I think, the emphasis and, and force of the word fellowship here. And that's, that'll be kind of an important theme to remember as you go through the book of Philippians. And you'll see it, I think, wrapped up at the, near, uh, in the, near the end of chapter 4. And you'll realize that Philippians is a thank you letter from Paul. It's a thank you note sent by Paph- sent through Paphroditus to the Philippians, thanking them for their fellowship or contributions to his ministry from the very beginning of his ministry with them. Well, fellowship allows us also to see God's work in others. So in verse 6 and 7, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, and by the way, that's plural, in you as a church, I think, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch both in my chains and in the defense of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Paul was confident based on their past sharing, which he mentioned in verse 5, that fellowship, that God would continue that good work in you, he says, in you all. Now, many people, I think, misunderstand verse 6 as, and I probably used to take it this way myself, as a promise that everybody who gets saved, God will continue to uh, finish the work in them until the day of Jesus Christ. And that, while that may be true in a sense, many people use this verse to support a doctrine of perseverance in the saints. In other words, when you are saved, God puts you on a track, and you can't be derailed from that track. If God started something in you, he will finish it in you. And that's used to 
support a doctrine of uh, God's strict determinism. But the fact is, we know that many Christians, not many, but some Christians don't continue in the Christian life. Some uh, turn away from it. Some die in their sins, like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.30, or Ananias and Sapphira, for example. So I don't think that it's a promise to individuals of a persevering life of godliness. But I think it's a promise to the Corinthian, I mean, to the Philippians uh, as a church that he's confident that they will continue to support him in his ministry until Jesus Christ comes. So if it should be so, and of course their expectation was in that day that he would come very soon. The day of Jesus Christ referring, I believe, to the rapture event. So he's expressing that confidence confidence uh, in their fellowship that they will continue to contribute to his ministry. And in verse 7, they were also sharing in his suffering, uh, not just financially, but he talks about, he says, I have you in my heart in as much as both in my chains. You're all partakers with me of grace. This idea of partaking with him is the idea of sharing in a sense, they were they were with him there in the prison cell. He felt that in his heart, that their hearts were connected, even though he was in prison far away. And th- so they shared not only in his suffering, in his ministry, but in his suffering as well. And he talks about his ministry as a defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense used here is the word from which we get apolo- apology or apologetics. And, you know, sometimes when we preach the gospel, we have to back up a little bit Uh, because we can't tell people that God promises them something, for example, unless if they don't believe there's a God. And so we might have to take a step back and talk to them about the fact that God exists or that the Bible is true, the Word of God, or that Jesus Christ uh, actually existed and died on the cross or rose from the dead. Uh, So those are are the kind of things that apologetics covers uh, in defense of the gospel. And he talks about confirmation of the gospel, which I think might refer to his positive declaration of his preaching. But notice that all of this, his relationship with them from the heart and their participation in his suffering and his ministry comes because of grace. They are partakers with me of grace. When we say that we have Jesus Christ in common and fellowship through him, it's because of his grace. And uh, if without his grace, we wouldn't have Christ. And so grace is what makes fellowship possible. I think what we see in this passage is that we should focus on the process that God has us in, not the perfection that uh, may, may one day, will one day be ours when we see Christ or he comes for us. Um, Paul is thanking them because they're on the way. And, and he understands that they are in a process of growth. And they have not yet arrived. They are not yet perfected. That won't come until the day of Christ. So if we are convinced that we might be perfect in this life, we're going to live a lonely life because nobody wants thinks that they can be as perfect as us. But our goal should not be in this life, perhaps realistically perfection, but perfecting. The difference is we can never be perfect in this life until we see Christ, but we can be perfecting or growing as we let grace change us and mold us and train us, as Titus chapter 2 says.
So when you think about how the church began with a businesswoman and a pagan Roman jailer and maybe even a a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, what would they have in common? What they have in common is Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And that's why you see this word all, I think, appearing in verse 2, all the saints. And in verse 7, he mentions uh, you all are partakers. In verse 8, the word all. In verse 25, the word all is mentioned. Paul is using that word, I think, as a way of emphasizing the unity that they have, which is a major theme of this epistle. So, in order to have that unity, we don't focus on perfection, but on perfecting. People are in process. And so, no one is better than anyone else. We are all on a journey. We're all on a road, different places on that road. And so, we shouldn't be exclusive or cliquish or feel out of place because we're different from others or haven't grown as much as others or others haven't grown as much as us. Focus on the process, not perfection. In verse 8, he goes on, I think, to show that fellowship results in genuine love for one another. Verse 8 says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with affection, with the affection of Jesus Christ. He calls God as his witness because Paul wants, doesn't want to fake his love or flatter them with uh, words of love, but he's saying that I call God as my witness that I long for you. Uh, he's genuinely lear- yearning and straining after Uh, their love and to express his love to them. Uh, You know, so much love today is phony. If you you look at uh, Hollywood stars or politicians or even maybe in the business world, people pretend to love one another as long as it serves their purposes. But as soon as they turn around, they're stabbed in the back. That love is phony. Paul is calling God as a witness to say that his love is sincere. and, uh, And that's the kind of love he has for them. When he says, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. But notice that 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 word affection, which means literally bowels of the heart, the innermost person, the seat of our emotions and affections, uh, where God is working, we have the affection of Jesus Christ. The, The love of God, God's pulse of love is beating in us. And it's not just to like people and to tolerate people, but to genuinely love them unconditionally. And that's what agape love means, that we love people unconditionally, not just that we put up with them. And nothing conditions our hearts and opens our hearts for that kind of love to be expressed. Nothing like the love of Christ that is expressed uh, through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, that grace that came to us through Jesus Christ. So fellowship, fellowship results in genuine love for one another, I think is what he's saying in verse 8. Well, when we look at this passage and we see this emphasis on fellowship, and um, we're, we're grateful for it. We, we recognize that God has given this wonderful thing, and we thank God for fellowship. But how do we experience true fellowship? Now, notice I didn't say how do we have true fellowship, but I said how do we experience it? And the reason is because we already have it. If you are in a room or in an association with another Christian or in a Bible study or at a church, you don't need to work at having fellowship. You actually have it. You have Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you. What greater commonality can you have? It trumps all the differences that we might have from one another. Financial differences, racial differences, age differences are all trumped by the fact 
that we have Jesus Christ in common. And if we learn to identify with him, we can experience true fellowship. I think there's some some hints about how this can be expressed in verse uh, some of these verses, like verse 4, where Paul says, I pray for you. Uh, and every time I think of you, you're always I'm always making requests for you. If we learn to pray for one another, we begin to share our lives at a deeper level with others. And we learn to identify with them and their needs or to share their burdens as we share ourself and our time and our prayers with God about them. I think prayer tends to weave people into our hearts. And so it's not just a cliche. Pray for people and you will find a deeper fellowship with them. And then I think verse 5 would teach us that you can participate in ministry with people to experience a more intimate fellowship with them. He's thanking them for their fellowship in the gospel, meaning that they supported him. Of course, you can, you can participate in people's ministry in other ways, like spending your time, your energy, your labors, your, your gifts. But financial support is almost always a necessary part of ministry. And I think that's what he's thanking them for in verse 5. And you will find if you participate in ministries uh, with your time, with your labor, and, and with your finances, that you will find yourself, again, woven into the heart of that ministry. You know, I find that when I give to missionaries or missionary organizations or a Christian cause, that I find myself now interested in them. You know, Jesus said, where, where your um, money is, there your heart will be also. He didn't say where your heart is, there your money will be. He says where your money is, there your heart will be. Your heart follows your money. And so if you send money to someone, I tend to keep in touch with them, uh, to look for updates from them, to pray for them. And it draws me into that deeper fellowship with them. True koinonia, or fellowship, results in true diakonia, or service, because it allows other people to serve when I may not have the time or the labor or the gifts to offer. My finances, at least, can help them to serve God more freely. So koinonia is not an end in itself, but it's a participation in the lives of other people. And it's a good thing. And, you know, someone, someone once said, you, you can't get too much of a good thing. Well, I always say, I wish I was part of that study because I know that bluebell ice cream is a good thing, but I can get too much of it to an unhealthy level. And if we only have koinonia on the level of fellowship and association and and gatherings and meals and so forth, uh, that can be unhealthy. That leads to koinonitis, I think. Koinonitis <laughs> meaning an overdose of koinonia. But our fellowship is for the purpose of what Paul says, defending and confirming the gospel in his case. So our fellowship and what we share in common should result in the fruit of service to one another and service to others. And so we, we might start by uh, participating in people's lives and ministries with simple hospitality, having them into the home, like Lydia invited Paul into the home, by the way, or taking them out for a cup of coffee or a meal, talking about not just the weather, but spiritual things, deeper things, things that can't take place on 
a quick Sunday morning, how do you doing, or even a Bible study where there's many other people present. I think sometimes good intimate fellowship needs a little bit of privacy where we can share deeper things with people instead of being part of a group. So pray for one another, participate in other people's lives and ministries. And then I think verses six and seven show that we need to let people know what God is doing in our lives. Just like Paul is reporting to them about the fact that he's in prison and they're able therefore to suffer with him at a deeper level. And so it goes beyond a simple, polite, social, conversational level. You know, communication has a lot of different levels. You can communicate on the very uh, uh, social, cultural way, very superficial, how you doing. But there's a deeper level. What are you thinking? Or what's your opinion? Or how can I pray for you? There, you can just keep getting deeper and deeper into people's lives and share in your sharing. If you let people know what God is doing in your life and you find out what God's doing there in their life as well. So, how are you doing? No, I mean, are you really fine? Or would you tell me if you're not doing fine? Can often result in some deeper fellowship and conversations. That's how I think we can experience true fellowship. Pray for one another, participate in the, the ministries around us and the lives around us, and let, let other people know what God is doing in your life and find out what God is doing in their life as well. True fellowship is a blessing, I think, that many Christians haven't discovered. They Too much of the Lone Ranger syndrome in the church today. But true fellowship comes when we share on the deepest level. And when we do that, it weaves our hearts together in love. And so that we truly, like Paul said, long to be with one another with the affection of Jesus Christ. True fellowship transcends all the differences that we see and experience in life, like our social status, our job status, our differences in age, race, um, sex, all these different things, even denominational and religious differences. The fact that somebody else has Jesus Christ and I have Jesus Christ transcends and trumps the differences with this fellowship. He gives us the commonality in him. Too often we only practice religion together. We worship and we work together, but we don't share at a deeper level our needs, our joys, and our defeats, our trials, and the obstacles in life, and what God is doing in our life. I think we need to learn to share at a deeper level and seek to encourage other people to share at a deeper level. And to continue to pray and participate in ministry and share what God is doing in our lives. I wonder if you're experiencing true fellowship today. Uh, meaning that is your life woven into the life and or ministry of others through your commonality in Jesus Christ, through uh, you extending your life to them, or even extending your finances to them, as in the case of the Philippians. I, that's the kind of fellowship God wants us to enjoy that helps us to grow more and more into Christ's image. But, you know, the first thing that you have to have, of course, with that fellowship is Jesus Christ in you. When we have that, we have the basis for all fellowship. And 
and then we let him work his life out through us. But I wonder if you're listening today and you might feel the loneliness of isolation and not having much in common with other people, but you know what? If you come into the Christian family through faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll suddenly have so much in common with other people. It will overwhelm you and rejoice your heart. Jesus Christ loves you, and he died on the cross to pay a price for your sins so that you would not be separated from God forever by your sin, but you can be with God forever because Jesus died, paid that price, and rose from the dead. He is alive and living, and he, and he said, if you believe in me, I'll give you the gift of eternal life. And if you just trust in Jesus Christ, believe in him as your Savior, and ask him for that gift, he'll give it to you absolutely free, and you will have Jesus, the basis of all fellowship. Let me close in a word of prayer. And Father, if there's any listening today who might doubt a relationship with you, feeling lonely or isolated, may they find their joy in Jesus Christ and his salvation. And will you come to live, not only give them eternal life, but live inside of them so that they're is a true fellowship with a great family of God. And my prayer today is that they would reach out to you through faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And for us who do know Jesus Christ as Savior, help us to work to develop a deeper fellowship by the sharing of our lives and our resources with others around us and ministries around us, that we might experience the affection of Jesus Christ himself. And I pray in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.